Good evening, everyone. Uh, I hope that all of you have had a good day today. And, uh, you know, I, I'm looking forward again tonight, even though it is late um, in the evening. But it, I, I have decided that despite it being late, that it uh, has not, that it's not going to stop me from um, being able to share um, another uh, podcast session of the book that I have uh, just finished recently uh, titled uh, John Adams Under Fire uh, by Dan Abrams. And tonight's uh, podcast discussion is going to be on uh, John Adams himself. However, uh, a future podcast will talk more about uh, Mr. Adams. However, this discussion tonight talks about John Adams's um, pursuit of becoming a lawyer, and not just by becoming a lawyer, but by being a successful lawyer that ultimately, in the end, enabled him to make a decision that would um, uh, not just so much uh, enhance his status as a lawyer, but also lay the proper foundations for our for our judiciary system, and not just judiciary judiciary system here in America, but our uh, system of, of uh, law and how um, our system of uh, courtroom um, settings uh, have derived. So, what do we really know about John Adams? Well, first off, he was born in 1735, and... You know, you think about it. If he was, if he's born in 1735, uh, that means that he's only a few years younger than George Washington. We also know that by 1735, the oldest living forefather in in our uh, in colonial America at that time is Benjamin Franklin. As a matter of fact, Benjamin Franklin was born in 1706. Uh, we also know by 1735 that uh, John Adams's cousin Samuel Adams, who is about 12 or 13 years older than John, is uh, just a young man at this time, about the age of 13. So John Adams is born in what we know is uh, Braintree, Massachusetts, which today would might be considered a suburb outside of Boston. But Braintree is probably somewhere about 15 to 20 miles outside of Boston. Of course, in his day, it was probably about just over 10. <laughs> but then again, John Adams didn't have interstate highways to travel to, to get to and from Boston like there are today. Not just in Boston, but anywhere else. Well, look at it this way. When John Adams uh, was born, there were not... There were institutions of higher learning in colonial America, but there weren't as many of them as, say, they were in England. It turns out that John Adams um, did attend, did go to Harvard, but of course back then it was not Harvard University, it was Harvard College. Now, a true New Englander wouldn't say Harvard, he or she would say Harvard I learned that just recently uh, on a television television show the other night. So going forward, whenever I go to Massachusetts in the near future, I'm not going to say there's Harvard. I will have to make sure to say there's Harvard, a true New Englander accent at the best. Well, John Adams attended Harvard, and he graduated from there in 1755 at the age of 20. Now remember, people... 
when John Adams was alive, he wasn't taking the SATs to get into college. There was no such thing as SATs. And he attended what we would think of as law school today, but of course, remember, in his day and time, there was no official law school. So, you know, graduating at the age of 20 was a common norm for anybody, especially for any man back in his time uh, who could attend a, a higher institution of learning and graduate at a young age. What's ironic for John Adams is that um, he almost chose to go into ministry. He felt that his original calling was to be a minister, but in the end, it turns out that Adams himself actually saw ministry as being too rigid. Well, if any of you don't know what the word rigid means, it means serious. Now, you know, serious is something that serious isn't a, always a bad thing, but Adams, or should I say John Adams himself, saw ministry as being too rigid in large part because there were too many limitations on the abil on one's ability to reason and challenge existing principles and doctrines. So therefore, Adams found a different calling in the field of law. He saw studying law as something that represented consistency, not just consistency in one area, but consistent learning on a regular basis when it came to expanding horizons within the profession. So it's safe to say that Adams, in the long run, made a smart decision because had he stayed in the ministry profession, it's safe to say that he may not have gotten the same kind of notoriety and fame uh, out of that profession as we know, as we now know, he got in the role of becoming a lawyer, a statesman, to ultimately being a founding father. So, it might be safe to say that even though Adams was not a minister, the good Lord above was guiding him in a proper direction where he was uh, able to use his talents in the right manner, serving um, not just um, local people in Boston, but serving people outside of Boston who needed his wisdom and expertise. Well, you know... By the time John Adams graduates from Harvard, England, being the mother country to all 13 colonies, would be the best place for anybody to go who wants to learn about the law. Why do I say that? Because in all universities in England, Oxford, Cambridge, and other universities, it was... Um, the law itself was taught in every um, institution of higher learning, so therefore it was pretty man. It was very mandatory. However, in America, or should I say, colonial America, that was not the case. As a matter of fact, if you wanted to even learn about law itself, it was really more of a trade or what we call an apprenticeship. In a sense, it was. It really wasn't a true profession. Um, it was really seen more as a part-time vocation. So in other words, a lawyer himself was practicing law, but only on a part-time um, 
basis, so therefore he had to find other occupations uh, for what do you call uh, better long-term um, income purposes or just better um, long-term um, work stability. Lawyers, ironically, were often having to compete with sheriffs and clerks over um, over the most simple of matters, being minor legal matters that ranged from drafting documents such as personal deeds or wills to handling small claims. So, how did John Adams become a lawyer? Or not just, should I say a lawyer, or should I say a successful lawyer? Well, it just didn't happen overnight. He had to um, sit in the courtroom and watch lawyers debate while trying their cases. And that's a great 101 start on how you on how one could be could become a successful lawyer. So have you ever heard of this uh, phrase passing the bar or gaining admission to the bar? Well, when I read this book, I fully understood why admission to the bar or what we call entry to the bar got its uh, meaning. The bar is what was referred to as physical barriers separating spectators and participants. Spectator meaning those who are just, you know, everyday ordinary citizens coming to the courtroom to listen to the actual trial, the participants being the judges or should I say a judge, with both the prosecution and defense lawyers and the clerks, all within the courtroom. And I should say that going to a trial was a primary source of entertainment. It's not the same kind of entertainment we might think of, like watching Law and Order on television today, but going to an actual trial in 18th century was the talk of town and not to get off track or anything but this is something that should be pointed out in Virginia especially when uh, the English first came to Virginia in 1607 to settle uh, Jamestown and in the years that followed when a person got in trouble within their own community he or she was brought to, in this case with Jamestown, the church. And it wasn't just um, having to face the judge or having to face the, what do you call it, um, members of the, um, of, the, of, of the church who were high up, but they were also forced to face the entire community. So in other words... You weren't just in. You, you just weren't in trouble. Your your punishment wasn't involved. Didn't pertain to those high up in the community. Your punishment um, involved the whole community. So in other words, everybody knew what you had done. So by having to face everyone, including um, people high up and from the community as a whole, was an embarrassment. So when you so now getting back onto the primary subject, 
when you went to an actual uh, courtroom, you as a, as a spectator were uh, not only part of the community, but you also got to see firsthand what someone in your community had done. So going to the courtroom was, wasn't just for entertainment purposes. You went to, to a courtroom to learn a lesson. And, and by learning a lesson, you as an individual would have uh, made sure that um, you were not going to make the same mistake as someone else um, from the community had done. Anyways, the legend has it, according to the English myth, that the bar was referred to as a great sandbar outside London Harbor. When a vessel passed over this bar, it became subject to British law. So what that means is that if a vessel had passed, the bar in a sense is like a hurdle. Okay, so if the vessel passes over, makes it over this hurdle, it's now an official subject to British law. So if the vessel does something later on down the road that is in violation, then it will have to go, its, it's people, or I should say its crew, will have to go before, that, before the uh, British court system to explain their actions for why they uh, committed um, an, an, an improper um, act. So, who does John Adams have to turn to as an advisor or mentor he turns to a man by the name of Samuel Gridley, who was a leading lawyer of Boston in the late 1750s. He encouraged John Adams to study law constantly. In other words, don't assume that if you've learned just one area of the law that you, have, that you know everything else there is to learn. In other words, keep learning because what you've learned today will be different tomorrow. Don't seek glorification. In other words, don't be looking for 15 minutes of fame. But keep learning, because the more you learn, the better you're going to be prepared for what lies ahead, not just tomorrow, but say within a year from now. He advised Adams to be well-rounded, study all facets of the law that range from common, civil, admiralty, to even being a counselor. It might be safe to say that Samuel Gridley was like the equivalent of a George Wythe, who was Thomas Jefferson's biggest mentor. So it is safe to say that many of our forefathers who went on to become lawyers had successful mentors who helped pave the road to their foundation. So, what areas of, of, of law could John Adams have dealt with? Well, he dealt with, with the following kinds of cases. Fraud, embezzlement, trespass, assault, tarring and feathering to insurance claims. Of course, when I think of tarring and feathering, I always think of uh, those who were loyal to the crown, who got on the Patriots' cases. They, to me, were the ones that got tarred and feathered by by those who were anti-loyalists. But believe it or not, John Adams did take on cases of this kind. I think it's safe to say that tarring and feathering was a form of assault. 
a brutal form of assault to say the least. And of course, if anyone in particular was the brunt of getting tarred and feathered, not just someone who was anti-patriot, um, um, but customs collectors particularly were tarred and feathered. Why? Because they were often the ones seen as stealing everyone else's money, or should I say everyone else's hard-working money. Adams himself represented accused <laughs> tax cheats debtors, thieves, smugglers, it's very easy to assume that, hey, how can this guy be considered a forefather? Well, believe it or not, our forefathers had to um, perform tasks that were unpleasant, but sometimes handling tasks like representing a thief or a smuggler can make that individual a better person in terms of perhaps not making the same mistake as a thief or a smuggler would but just by gaining a better appreciation of what the law itself represented. Lastly, Adams himself handled disputes over water rights, unreturned loans. He even settled family feuds to mediating disputes. And believe it or not, there, were, there was such a thing as family dysfunction even in the 18th century. It's very easy to assume that family dysfunction is something that's only occurred in the 20th or should we say 21st centuries. But believe it or not, family feuds were prevalent in the 18th century. One, one form of family feud that I have uh, come to learn as a result of having read so much about the American Revolution was that in many families, loyalties were often um, at a bitter crossroads. In other words, it's, in other words there were many families who had um, loved ones that either were on the Patriot side or, and you had loved ones who were on the uh, side of the Loyalists. And these tensions were so bad that it caused some family members to disown one another or let alone walk out on their family to the point where, to where a loved one ultimately went into exile by either going to England or going uh, somewhere in the West Indies or in the Caribbean, even into Canada. So, you know, it, it's easy to assume that everybody was united leading up to war with England, but what we do forget is that um, family feuds were very common, especially when it came to who, who their loyalties um, lied with, not just with England, but by being uh, loyal to... Um, to the cause for in what would what we now know is independence from England, but in 1770, not ever, not all 13 colonies have said, or should I say, not all of the other remaining colonies have said, "Hey, we want separation from England." As of right now, Massachusetts is on a limb as the only leading colony to say, "Hey, we're looking for um, gradual independence from England." not just independence 10 years from now, but we are looking for a way to rid ourselves from having any form of tie to, to the mother country. So, is it safe to say that by the time John Adams becomes a lawyer, that people in general have a good attitude towards lawyers? Ironically, most people often met often had skepticism with lawyers. 
to them, they saw lawyers as individuals who preferred to take advantage of people's misfortunes and instead looking after their own personal well-being with regards to status. How, how often we can say that in today's unstable world with the politicians we send to our modern-day Congress. But I do believe it is safe to say that John Adams was not a greedy was not a greedy lawyer or should I say a greedy trial lawyer John Adams did look after people's well-being but John Adams also made sure to do it in a in a more um, civil way believe it or not he did thrive on conflict and I think this can be attributed to his result to be a successful orator in the courtroom his arguments were relevant and they were filled with history, philosophy, and precedent. In other words, he didn't just get up on the stand and, and make a case just for attention. He did his homework, and he pointed to history from events past and to the wisdom of philosophers. And in every case he tried, he wanted to establish a precedent, not just for the current... Um, moment, but for how that precedent could take um, the case he tried into the future. Is it safe to say that most um, Bostonians were shocked at John Adams's decision to, in the end, to defend eight British soldiers and their captain in the aftermath of what happened on the night of March 5th, 1770? The answer to that question is no. And the reason why is because John Adams himself was widely recognized and knowledgeable in a multitude of different law-related subjects. Well, um, here's a 101 question and an answer. Why did John Adams represent the eight soldiers, or should I say the eight British soldiers and their captain being Thomas Preston, in two trials. John Adams chose to represent them because he felt that they, rep that they were entitled to, to have the right to a fair trial. In other words, yes, a, an atrocious crime was committed. But no matter how big or small the stakes were, he firmly believed that everyone, regardless of their rank in society, was entitled to have their their case be entitled to have their case be told. In other words, entitled to have their story be told. They were entitled to to hear the facts, not just on the side of the accused, but also on the side of the plaintiffs. Without, without the right to a fair trial, then how could the facts be told? How could someone be able to clear themselves of their innocence? Yes, John Adams knew that, that there were uh, many people out there who felt that the British soldiers were automatically guilty. John Adams knew that, hey, 
if there are people out there who feel that these soldiers are guilty, we need to have we need to have an actual trial. In other words, they may be guilty at the moment, but it's up to a jury or or to a judge to decide what the real fate where the real fate lies. So, with all this said for tonight, I end tonight's discussion with all of us asking this question. Given all the success that John Adams had, did he pay a price for representing, for doing the unthinkable and representing the opposition who had committed a heinous, supposedly committed a heinous crime in killing five innocent civilians and wounding seven others? The answer is that it's a double-edged sword, yes and no. Yes, John Adams might have paid a price, but he paid the price for the right reasons. And as the next podcast we'll talk about, we will not only focus about John Adams, but we will focus about some of the other lawyers not only on the prosecution side, but who also teamed up with John Adams. We've all been led to believe that when John Adams did represent the eight soldiers and their commander, that he did it all on his own. He actually didn't. He had the help of two other lawyers. And it's safe to say that this was also the first time in colonial American history where more than one lawyer represented both sides of a trial. I can also tell you this too, that up until 1770, most all court trials, regardless of their size, only lasted one or two days. Nobody had ever witnessed a trial that lasted beyond the two days. This is, where another, this is where another form of history is going to come into play. Well, that is all for tonight. Thank you for allowing me to share another, ep- another podcast episode of John Adams Under Fire. I will say this. I don't believe John Adams was under fire. John Adams was uh, looking after everyone in general. He was looking after his city that he loved. He, he, he was trying to do everything there was to keep order under control so that further bloodshed could be avoided. And more will, more will be told in our next podcast. Good night, stay safe, and stay tuned. And stay tuned. Thank you.